Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Packed house, welcome. Uh, I'm Trace Nair, I'm an early Bitcoin investor. I'm actually an investor in two of the companies up here. Alan Reiner is CEO of Armory, I'm a seed investor there. And Jesse Powell, CEO of Kraken, it's the largest Euro Bitcoin exchange. Then we have Nick Carey, he uh, is CEO of blockchain.info, which raised the largest round for any Bitcoin company, $30.5 million. And Alan's company provides security services, which is what's in the news, right? Like $500 million disappeared from Mount Gox, one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges. That's a big, big problem. So Alan, you know, is CEO of Armory Technologies, provider of the most secure Bitcoin wallet out there. What brought you into Bitcoin, and what are you doing to help this security issue uh, with Bitcoin? And so Alan's got a little bit of a presentation for us in the very beginning that helps us understand where the security issues are. So you'd like to take it from there? Sure. So I've just got a couple slides here. We got a, a request to, to give a little background on Bitcoin before going into details of how Bitcoin security and payments and stuff works. Uh, quick introduction, Bitcoin. When it comes to actually processing payments, holding money, uh, moving money, it, it all comes down to the cryptography. And that's what makes Bitcoin great, is that there's this cryptography behind it that's strong and powerful and, and no one knows how to break it. And that cryptography is defined by public and private keys. In the world of Bitcoin, a public key is very much like your bank account number. Bitcoin is a giant public bank that everyone can see, everyone can audit it, they can see balances. And your public key is what's needed both to see the balance of your wallet as well as send money to it. And you're gonna give someone your public key when you want them to pay you. But in order for that money to move, you need a private key. And that's a mathematically linked object that's stored on your computer. And applications like Armory, our goal is to store that piece of data as securely as possible because someone who gets that gets access to your money. So you can think of a public key very much like a bank account number and a private key as like a special pen that you use to sign transactions. I've got a little illustration here of what a transaction looks like. You have a network full of Bitcoins and everyone can see where all the Bitcoins are, what public keys, what bank account numbers they're, they're associated with. Here we have Alice and Bob and we say Alice has money because she has private keys in her wallet signing pens for uh, coins in the network that are associated with the related public keys. When she's going to execute a transaction, when Bob says, please pay me, she's going to collect the public key or a representation of it from Bob and she's going to create a transaction, which you can think very much like a check. When you write a check from my bank account to your bank account, I'm putting your details on it. In this case, I'm putting Bob's public key on this check, and then you're signing it. And unlike a regular handwritten signature, this is a mathematical proof. It's not just a bare signature, it's wrapping up the whole check and all the details of it. And if someone were to manipulate any data in that check that I just signed, it becomes invalid. And that's the power of the cryptography uh, behind this. 
So private keys let you move money. It essentially, it lets you unlock coins in the Bitcoin network and relock them under other people's public keys. At all times, we can represent the network as, say, 21 million Bitcoins, which is the maximum. And the act of sending coins simply removes some from circulation and creates others the, the exact same number under someone else's ownership. Public keys let you receive money and see balances. When you hear the phrases hot and cold wallets, what we're referring to is the idea that you can separate the public keys and the private keys. In the early days of Bitcoin, uh, you couldn't do that. If you were on the network, all the both pieces were on your computer. But cold storage is a mechanism where you can keep the public keys, which are less sensitive, on your regular computer and give that to people to send you money. And you can verify payments with that. And the, the, the private keys, which are really the sensitive data that someone could use to steal your money, is kept offline in a computer that's never touched the internet. Or as technology moves forward, not necessarily a computer, but smaller devices, um, HSMs are kind of the banking industry standard that we've used for the past 20 years to, to secure digital data like this, and that's probably coming to Bitcoin. Multi-signature transactions, another buzzword that you hear in the community, and that is basically the idea that the network has the capability to do more complex things. You're not just associating one public key with coins and saying, I need a signature. You're actually giving the network a list of keys and you say, here's three keys, I want signatures from at least two of them. That check will actually not be valid unless there's two or three signatures on it. This is a very critical puzzle piece as Bitcoin moves forward in the world and as institutional investors and, and institutional, basically world-class organizations get involved because in the early days of Bitcoin, it was users who were managing money and now it's organizations designating employees to manage their money. And when that's the case, we open up, up a whole new world of security issues and people running off with money and colluding. And multi-signature gives you a capability to split signing authority. You can give keys to people who are in different states, different countries, or just board members, different board members of your company. And you know that you need a quorum of them in order for that money to move. This is why you hear so much about multi-sig in the, in the media, because there have been so many security incidents in Bitcoin's history, and much of it could have been avoided if you had proper segregation of duties, which could be deployed using this multi-signature uh, feature of the Bitcoin network. Thanks, Alan. I hope that helped everybody get a little bit of an understanding about the fundamental technology that we have here. Now, with Bitcoin, we have a seven-sided network effect taking place. The first is speculators. The next is going to be merchants then consumers, then we have the security of the Bitcoin network or the miners, then we have the developers who are building applications on top of Bitcoin, then we have financialization, that's where Wall Street will be coming into this, and then we have liquidity. That's kind of what the what people involved in Bitcoin really want. They want this to become, you could say, a world reserve currency status. So the questions I have for our panel are going to proceed along and help us understand how all of these network effects are taking place at the same time with Bitcoin. So with the blockchain technology, it can be applied in thousands of different ways. It's the first practical implementation of triple entry bookkeeping, but the first primary application is as currency. Jesse, you're the CEO of Kraken. It's the largest Euro to Bitcoin exchange in terms of volume. Can you tell us a little bit about this exchange market and what you think are the two largest opportunities and challenges uh, within it? Sure. For us, being able to move money internationally on top of Bitcoin or using Bitcoin as an intermediary currency, it's going to create a lot of efficiency. 
It's going to reduce the cost. It's going to increase the, the speed with which we can set the transactions. We've just launched in Japan. We've got banks on both sides, both in, in Europe and uh, in Japan. And I think we can probably start solving some corporate treasury problems there in international forex. If you want to convert dollars to euros on, on PayPal, you're taking something like a 10% hit. If you wanted to do that through Kraken, you could do it much cheaper. So I think, I think Bitcoin's going to facilitate a lot of that. International remittances. Apart from that, I think we're going to start to see new assets being created on the blockchain, uh, new things being securitized or digitized, deeds, trusts, and we'll, we'll see a lot of things that traditionally have not been liquid assets become liquid and tradable on, on blockchain or on exchanges like Kraken. And just to delve into that part a little bit, it's because when you actually have this transaction that gets recorded in the blockchain, that can't be altered ever. Right. So we could have notary services, we could have deeds to real estate, all types of things could be recorded into that blockchain because we have an unalterable record. And then those assets can trade on exchanges or in a lot of different other ways. Moving a little bit past the, the speculator area and more to the consumers and the merchants, we've got how many wallets are on blockchain.info now? About 2.5 million. 2.5 million. One of the largest consumer wallets out there. You raised the $30.5 million, the largest single round for a Bitcoin company. Congratulations. Smart merchants, they'll take customers' money however customers want to give it to them, right? Venture capitalists, they're just licking their chops over this disruption in the fintech space. To date, over $400 million has been committed to Bitcoin startups. You've secured the largest single round from these VCs. What do these VCs see? What are the trends regarding this merchant and this consumer adoption that these VCs are willing to start allocating this amount of capital to? So uh, this is Money 2020, and we're all here to bring into focus the future of finance. And I think if we look back just at the trend line in terms of what's happening in Bitcoin, things get pretty interesting. Three years ago, there was one Bitcoin company. Last year, there were six. This year, there are over 20. This is happening for a lot of fundamental reasons. Bitcoin represents an opportunity for us to bring financial efficiencies and digital efficiencies to a space that has struggled so far to do that. So a lot of millennials will understand this, but we've watched some very fascinating things happen to property rights in the last 10 years alone. A decade ago, I used to go to Blockbuster to rent DVDs, and now I can download them and put them on my phone instantly, basically for free. And we know what happens to Blockbuster. I used to be able to go buy books down by the store, and now I get them on my Amazon Kindle anywhere in the world instantly. So there's this expectation that things will go digital. That's happening to money as well. When the VCs, and especially anyone who's working in this space, looks at the opportunities, they're very, very excited about where we can go with things. So from a growing perspective, a year ago today, blockchain had maybe 300,000 users. And in the last year, despite all the crazy news and the rest of the things that have been happening, we're now at 2.5 million. That's because there are incredible use cases that are unleashed with Bitcoin-like technology. It's the first time in the history of the world that someone can move value from one place to another, have it instantly recorded in an unalterable ledger, instantly basically for free. There are no terms of service. There's no property rights on this protocol itself in the sense that anyone can develop on it and open up to build. So just at the beginning of this conference, there was a huge hackathon here. People flew in from all over the world and they could work on closed source systems or open source systems. And by far and away, the developers chose to build on Bitcoin. And this shouldn't be a surprise, but it should also be an indicator of where the mind share is moving. 
when the developers are shifting where they're spending their time and investing their mental capacity, keep an eye out because that's where the puck is going. So one thing to consider anyway. Yeah, I mean, we saw that with BlackBerry. The developers started developing on Apple about two years before the major shift to Apple and Android. And now we, we had, what, two people in out of the 450 at the hackathon that built on the MasterCard API. Over 50% of the hackathon was on Bitcoin-related projects. Yeah, and the things that are coming together are absolutely amazing. I mean, we're watching ways to completely reimagine the way people transact. And that's really one of the most exciting things about Bitcoin. But one of the guys that won the contest was a 16-year-old kid that programmatically found a way in 24 hours to reduce the volatility of Bitcoin holdings and blockchain wallets. And uh, I was standing next to this kid's father. I didn't know how old he was, and he had flown in from Florida. I said, boy, you know, you're going to probably need to watch out. Your kid's going to drop out of college soon and build a big business. He turns to me and he goes, my kid's not out of high school yet. <laughs> and, uh, this is like, when I saw that, I mean, it's, it's really exciting. And it brings a sense of purpose to the way people are thinking about building services in the future. But in 24 hours, a 16-year-old computer programmer was able to solve a volatility problem in Bitcoin. And uh, this kind of thing is going to accelerate and grow even more quickly. We're very excited. This is programmable money. It means that people can do things that haven't been possible before whether it's multi-signature transactions for corporate treasuries or all kinds of really compelling things that'll happen with property rights in the future. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, we'll get back to the disruption with you a little bit later. But I, I do think it's so important because like I edited a book, Bitcoin for Kids. How does a 14-year-old start their internet business? How do they take payments? They can't get their merchant account. And how many billions of people over the world are excluded from our current payment systems that will be able to come into Bitcoin? So we'll, we'll get to that next. First, I need to go to Jesse, though, because regulation. In March of 2013, FinCEN issued the guidance on how to treat these virtual currencies. Texas has come out with guidance. Kansas followed it. New York has their bit license. Uh, we heard from Superintendent Roski last night about this. Germany, Denmark, Singapore, Island Man, Netherlands have all been very friendly towards Bitcoin. You're right on the front line of this with Kraken. How do you see this regulatory environment changing over the last few years, and where do you see it going? Things have definitely gotten looser around the rest of the world. Europe's opening up. Japan is, is wide open now. I think more countries are getting comfortable with the idea of Bitcoin, and I think more regulators in the United States state level are getting more comfortable with it. I'm not sure where, where New York is, but they seem to be kind of far away on, on the negative side, at least from, from what they produce with the, you know, the bit license proposal, which was completely over the top. And I heard Lossie say last night, he, he thought it was ridiculous that somebody would stay out of New York just because they were required to get licensed. But it's not like just because it's required to get licensed, like, like that's an easy thing to do. But you stay out of, you stay out of this house just because like, all these two legs if you walk in. <laughs> the industry, the industry can't support the level of compliance that's required right now. We're at a $5 billion market cap. The cost of, of complying with um, the bit license as proposed is ludicrous, but the cost of even complying with, with the state's money transmission would, would be far and away greater than what we're actually earning in revenue from the state. So until Bitcoin grows by uh, 10x, it's just not worth it to comply with these laws. And for us, our, our approach is just going to stay out of the United States because we just can't justify that compliance cost. That's unfortunate for the United States. 
because I think that it, it's why the United States is so far behind in, in payments and financial services innovation. The rest of the world has kind of passed us by there. And the largest exchange is uh, Bitstamp, right, out of the UK. And then we got the Chinese exchanges. We, we don't actually have a Bitcoin exchange in the U.S., do we? Like, right. the U.S. isn't a player when it comes to the exchange of Bitcoin. Right. There's nobody, to my knowledge, servicing the country legally. So, <laughs> <laughs> so right, like, we're based in San Francisco. You know, my neighbor can't even use Kraken because... That would require us to go get a, a California state money transmission license to, to deal with all the compliance that comes along with that, and the audits, and, and all that. And thousands and thousands of dollars a year, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, uh, in bonds and dealing with the audits and all the additional overhead um, just to service people you know, in our home state. So I hope that the state regulators will come to reason, or I hope that we'll, we'll see some sort of federal preemption. Um, that will cover all the states. In Europe, they've managed to figure it out. Somehow, 20 plus countries have managed to like work together and you need one license to cover all of the EU. In the United States, you've got one country and you need 50 licenses. It's tough. I mean, these laws were built decades ago before the internet. I mean, it's just going to be a matter of time before uh, states loosen up or, or the Bitcoin market cap just blows up. And it gets to be so valuable that it's actually worth it from yeah, and, and it's, would you say it's stifling the innovation in the U.S.? I mean, do we really want the next Facebooks and Googles and Yahoo's being built in Hong Kong or Singapore or the Netherlands and not in Silicon Valley? Right, that's the question. And I guess the United States is going to have to answer that. But uh, that's sort of where we're at. Yeah, these companies that are abroad are, are flourishing. We are very much struggling in the United States. It's very costly to um, receive the licenses. Not that I'm, I'm wishing any enforcement on anybody in the space, but there hasn't been a clear uh, benefit to, to going and getting all these licenses. You can still do it, but then you're still up against these guys that have been operating for a few years that don't have the licenses, that do have in the exchange business volume and liquidity matters most. So, even if we went out to get all these licenses, is that going to matter? Because we still don't know if everyone's just going to prefer to go to the most liquid US dollar exchange. And for the US consumers who do want to acquire the Bitcoins, there's now a two way ATM. You can feed both dollars in and, and receive dollars out, and it costs $4,000. Right. And they can sprout up like mushrooms and not be compliant. Big deal. The, this regulation is definitely kind of an issue uh, for the Bitcoin industry. And hopefully the regulators in the US will adopt some type of a a realistic policy towards it. Turning back to the disruption in the frontier markets, the financial infrastructure is abysmal in most of the world, right, Nick? In many developing countries, we found that people actually prefer cell phones instead of electricity and running water in their houses. So you traveled all over the world and you provide services to many of these people that are shut out of the traditional services. How can the traditional financial service institutions harness Bitcoin to serve these greatly underserved markets throughout the world? Well, so far, traditional financial services have vastly ignored um, people in emerging and frontier markets. So to be clear, there are 2.5 billion people on planet Earth that are currently unbanked, not underbanked, that have zero access to financial services. Now, the interesting thing is smartphone penetration in a lot of these markets is very high. Today, with blockchain wallet or other wallet providers, they can actually put basically a bank on their phone. 
they can sign up instantly and then start to transact with anybody anywhere in the world instantly, basically for free. That's incredibly powerful. So if you combine that with things like e-commerce and shipping and other things, you're about to open up huge new markets to all kinds of fantastic services. This is really exciting. I had a really cool epiphany this year. My sister is in the Peace Corps in Morocco, and I've told this story a few times. Over the last 12 months, I've traveled around 350,000 miles all over the world to meet with Bitcoiners, to meet with audiences, to do evangelism, build a team, and talk about Bitcoin. I was in the Saharan Desert with my sister on a camel trek. We hadn't seen an electrical system for several days. We were being guided out into the desert by this man in a beautiful big blue jawaba. There were like dung beetles, and it was like a quintessential like Arabian night. We were watching the sunset, and the whole moment was completely ruined when this guy's iPhone 5 rings, and he picks up a call and starts to do a business deal with somebody. This guy sells polished geodes for a living to give you a sense of where he's at. This guy now has access through blockchain, through wallet services that are available on a smartphone. It gives them essentially a better service than is available or currently being provided by anyone in the first world. So these people that frankly live in places where there are strong capital controls, where there's been no access to financial services, um, they're used to using credit systems though to buy credit for their phones to be able to use them. They're used to these digital assets already. They're one step away from moving to a digital currency. They're very familiar with cash. Almost 95% of all these countries deal with cash-only payments. So they're going to be very comfortable with a digital form of that. And we're already seeing this be successful in some test cases. Uh, Kenya has a system where people basically, I think it's like almost half the GDP of the entire country is traded over um, this thing called M-Pesa, which is a credit system run through the uh, telecom there. But that's a closed loop system. Bitcoin's open and anyone can switch to it. Very exciting. Um, I think for us, a year ago, we were seeing sort of the more speculative side of the market uh, being in, in play. This year, I mean, we track a lot of data on downloads for our services. And I can tell you that countries like Argentina and Brazil and Russia, they are coming up on our radar in terms of total adoption. And it shouldn't be a big surprise. Thanks, Nick. Bitcoin is an open source software, which means everybody has access to all the source code all the time. Right, Alan? There's tons of attack vectors. You could actually have your phone stolen or, or your computer. So you, you have these physical attack vectors. You could have purely mental attack vectors, like having the entropy compromised with the random number generator. Additionally, there's no way to prove whether someone was hacked or whether they actually embezzled the Bitcoins, which is problematic. Nevertheless, the protocol is extensible, and we can have these segregation of duties with the multi-signature. But it's an incredibly complex area of work. You're a literal rocket scientist. Before you jumped over to do Bitcoin, you were doing missile defense recognition for one of the defense contractors. I mean, you screw up, people die, right? Like, it's a problem. So can you tell us some of the challenges that you've encountered assembling a team to focus on this Bitcoin-specific programming and just the challenge in general that companies like those here are going to have accumulating the human capital if they're going to move into this space. Right, so I'll jump back a little bit towards the first question, which was uh, kind of about what, what Armory is doing, because it, it ties into uh, why Armory has been successful at what it's been doing where others haven't. And that is, you know, one of the things that as Bitcoin has grown, is that, as I mentioned in the short presentation, you've transitioned from users protecting their own money to large institutions that are now protecting, uh, that are using employees to manage their money. There's very high incentive, especially for a currency or, or store value that 
where loss looks identical to, uh, to, to someone having stolen it. Um, there's a great deal of risk involved in this. And Armory, what we base our business on is being able to provide tools to, to companies, uh, enterprises, investment funds, banks, who are familiar with security in the physical world, but haven't kind of adapted yet to this new world. But that's part of why Bitcoin has so many young folks. Like when Nick was talking about the 16-year-old kid who won this hackathon, there's a lot of young kids because they are the most tech savvy. They have grown up with computers and developing, you know, a lot of our guys on our team are young. And it's been very challenging to find people for exactly the reason you said. I mean, this is a lot of companies will try to hire people at, you know, they'll, they'll try to find the best, lowest salaries, you know, that they can get the work done. But uh, in the space that Armory operates in, you can't make those compromises. You really need very, very talented people who are very, have very high attention to detail and are very cognizant of all the factors that are involved. Personally, I believe this is actually potentially an impediment to Bitcoin as a platform because it does require more focused resources than a lot of other businesses that you could be running, especially with the legacy systems. Uh, there's a lot of kind of built-in consumer protections outside of Bitcoin that can be leveraged when your developer screws up. You know, someone loses $100 and can reverse it, and that doesn't work very well in Bitcoin. So it's been very challenging, and we have actually spent a significant amount of our own resource trying to find people who have the, the real attention to detail and have the real background. And actually, it turns out it's a lot of the younger folks who've been uh, intrigued by cryptography and programming since they were 12. And I think, what, three of the seven at Armory actually have master's degrees in cryptography. Yeah, that's right. which is probably everybody who graduated that didn't go to the NSA, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just a very small niche. There just aren't that many people who major in photography. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing's not common on here is that it's true that the talent pool in Bitcoin, especially technically, is very shallow. But all of us in the industry really need some help from people that have decades of experience in fintech and also in consumer services. We have an obligation to build better software. The value proposition of Bitcoin, I think, has been well-tested. But what we have to do is make it easier to use. That's a real mission for everyone that's in Bitcoin right now, because all the stuff that's happening under the covers is going to be designed to help consumers and protect them. But at the end of the day, they just need to find something that's easy to use that they can trust. We're all on a mission to do a better job of that. But frankly, we're here to build bridges at Money 2020 to learn and also to make sure that we're, we're doing the right things. A lot of collective knowledge has been in this industry forever. And so we don't have all the answers, trust me. But we do know we've caught lightning in the bottle. There's a huge opportunity to make big differences in a lot of people's lives by providing them financial services when they didn't have them before, or even just better services for people today. Well, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I completely echo that sentiment. I mean, we, we've got a new technology here, but it's not a panacea to solve every single problem that's out there. And there's lots that we can learn from the current systems and the current ways that things are done to take it to the next level. So we've got about 15 minutes left. We'd like to open it up for some question and answers from people. Here we go. We got three of our top CEOs. Don't be shy. We got microphones in each of the aisles. I'd like your opinion on the, what the, the biggest challenge with dealing with sovereign governments around the world. How is Bitcoin going to do that? How are they going to start using Bitcoin to pay taxes, or are they? Yeah. So the question is, uh, how how does Bitcoin, the network, or at least the industry, interact with the sovereign governments around the world? Uh, anybody want to take that? And I, I can answer this, I guess, briefly. Um, so I'm not a tax attorney, but I live in the United Kingdom. I earn my salary 100% in Bitcoin. 
I have to report all my income though and I denominate it in US dollars. At the end of the day, when I have to pay my taxes, I report all that income and I cut a check to the US government after exchanging my Bitcoins at a currency exchange like Crack. Just like earning all your income in cash could provide you an opportunity to not report. Um, Bitcoin has a gigantic open ledger. If your identity is ever tied to addresses that are proven to be yours, it's going to be very hard to hide. So I don't think it's necessarily a fantastic system for tax evasion. In fact, it may prove to be quite the opposite. Uh, I've actually been involved with helping get a plugin built for NetSuite, which is accounting software, and it's operational now and will actually take all the way from point of sale completely through the financial statements, and then you can program in whatever tax rules apply. So uh, I think it can be folded very, very easily into the current system. Uh, next question. I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you perceive the instability in the Bitcoin system. Given it's not a fiat currency, the underpinning value is, it's just as arbitrary as any other currency, but in this particular case, it's digital and it's mathematically based. How do you see the stability of that? Because if you pay tax, let's say, at the end of the year, but you earn money at the beginning of the year, if your currency drops to a, you know, an infinitesimally small percentage of what it was when you earned it, someone is going to be losing out based on that instability. What's your view on when Bitcoin will be stable? Yeah, so the question is, the Bitcoin price has a lot of volatility involved in whether I think it's going to get stable or not. Uh, I've been around it since the nickel. I've been involved and watched every up and down uh, with it. I agree a lot with Gil Luria from Wedbush Securities. He did a, a report on this. And when you look at the discounted future value of Bitcoin, if it were to go to, say, a million dollars per Bitcoin from the current $350, then you have to look at the percentage probability that that's going to occur. And that, and, and the change in the human psychology or the estimation that that's going to happen is what he attributes to the large fluctuations in the prices. So I personally don't think that the price is going to settle down anytime soon because we have at least 20 years worth of work uh, ahead of us before Bitcoin is going to realize uh, that type of potential, if it realizes it at all, because it could go to nothing. Any thoughts on that, Alan? I mean, I, I think part of it has to do with the fact that, although if it was a $5 billion company, that's actually a sizable company, but uh, Bitcoin as a $5 billion system is, is a global system, and you have people all over the world and investors all over the world who even have net assets larger than that that can pump money into the system and pull money out. In the future, I believe that the system will be bigger. It will have a higher market cap. You won't have so much impulsive reaction of the price based on one investor pumping money into it or, or large investment funds that, that are this. Bitcoin will need to get bigger, and when it does, it's going to dampen all those oscillations. Well, then, comment quickly on the price. I think just about everyone that's in the industry spends a lot less time worrying about that than they used to. We're really interested, though, in transaction volume. And actually, in the last few weeks, we have seen record transaction volumes despite the price being slightly deflated over the course of the year. Um, and that's very interesting because that's a pure sign of adoption. I mean, people are using it to transact. Now, Bitcoin sometimes gets conflated because there's a confusion in the fact that Bitcoin is a network of payment systems, just like Visa or Amex, except it's open and distributed. And Bitcoins are a currency that ride on top of that network, like a credit system, that you can invest in if you believe in it. And one of the interesting things that creates some speculation around the price is imagine if we were having this conversation maybe in 1970 or 1980, and someone said, there's this great new idea that's going to let us send messages around the world using the internet, and we're going to be able to do that instantly, basically for free. We're going to call it email. And you could buy into some email credits and own part of that network. Well, imagine if you could do that for the future of finance. 
And that's some of the things that drive some crazy questions about how valuable is Bitcoin. I won't go too much into what that could be because I think it drives a lot of crazy conversations. But looking at the timelines, in the last year, merchant adoption has been fantastic. You've seen companies like Dell, Expedia, Overstock, OkCupid, WordPress, Wikipedia. These are some of the largest online brands on the planet that are accepting Bitcoin. They don't do this if there's reputational risk. They do this because there's opportunity. So continue to expect lots of new online merchants to accept Bitcoin and uh, continue to expect a lot more VC money moving into the space because there are huge bets being placed. And then separately, you also need to look at where the mind share is, not just on the developer side, but where people are bringing decades of experience, whether it is from consumer technology or insurance or property rights systems or real estate or whatever, and they're dedicating their lives to solving interesting problems using Bitcoin technology. And next year, if you have a chance to come back here, Visit the hackathon because the level of inspiration that's coming out of these quick projects is really, really compelling. So keep an eye out for that stuff. Yeah, and Patrick Burns, CEO of Overstock, he had come out and said that the Bitcoin adoption will probably add four cents to EPS this year out of about 80 cents. So there's this large incentive for the merchants to actually adopt Bitcoin because it, you know, there's no fraud, no chargebacks with it, uh, and much lower fees. And then it can open up these markets like Africa where they could ship. I mean, how do you take payment from somebody in Africa if you're Amazon? So I think that they don't have credit cards. Yeah, they don't have credit cards, but they could, you know, and is Amazon just going to seed that entire market to Overstock? Because Overstock now takes payment internationally via Bitcoin from 200 plus countries. So I think that that's important. Also, we haven't really begun to see the financialization of Bitcoin take place yet. I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago at the British consulate in New York with Elizabeth Ritter, who had spent 25 years at the CFTC. She said that the CFTC is looking for a Bitcoin futures uh, exchange to come out of Bitcoin futures products. So large merchants, uh, they need an ability to hedge that volatility. And I think that'll help uh, even out some of the price too. Now let's go with the next question. I just had a, a, a question about privacy. So if I understand the way that, that Bitcoin works, if I would like to receive a payment from you or somebody else, I can give you my public key, which means that you can see my account balance. What if I don't want you to see my account balance? This is a really good point. Um, a lot of people assume that Bitcoin is somehow like an anonymous payment system. It is, in fact, quite the opposite in the case that you just provided. If I send a transaction to Trace, Trace can actually look up the balance of my wallet, which is completely different than um, existing financial systems. Now, there are privacy tools that are coming online that help obfuscate transaction history, and those are going to come with a whole plethora of new questions about how does privacy and finance work in the age of digital currencies. I personally think they're incredibly important. When I go buy a hamburger or go settle up with a friend on a trade or something like that, I don't want them to be able to look up my balance. In fact, I have to use these privacy solutions when I pay my employees because otherwise they can track each other's salaries and they can also look up the corporate balances of the company's accounts. So we have a right to financial privacy and make transactions. The same is true in Bitcoin and there are all kinds of interesting services that support this type of thing. Basically make it more difficult for someone to study a transaction history. Very controversial to some. And Alan, you were actually instrumental in uh, BIP32, the Bitcoin investment uh, proposal 32, which uh, brings in hierarchical deterministic wallets, which is very key and important for uh, address reuse is the issue. Could you go into that a little bit to help? So I'll, I'll try not to get too technical about it, but uh, yes, uh, 
we at Armory are very adamant against against reusing addresses for exactly that reason. The reason the question was asked because if you use one address over and over again or one public key, you are essentially exposing your history to everyone that you transact with. It's been common practice in the the system that wallets, especially like Armory and some of the others that are, that are featured in Bitcoin.org, uh, try to help you use lots of different addresses so that your history kind of remains unlinked. But one of the problems with that is it creates a backup nightmare for users. And that was one of the things that Armory first came up with was the idea of being able to, to generate new addresses but not ruin your backups since you can have one backup one time ever. And uh, you can super secure that and you don't have to worry about uh, losing your points even though every new person that you interact with is getting a new key. I think the privacy question is an interesting one because it was, you know, Satoshi who created Bitcoin, the, the anonymous inventor, favored anonymity, and, and we, as an inter, you know, as an industry, we, we want customer privacy and transact and financial privacy. But it turns out Bitcoin isn't all that good at it. I think that's another challenge in the Bitcoin space is how to balance these things. Uh, you can be very good and, and yet still have a significant amount of your or, or use good tools and still have significant uh, privacy compromise just by people with tools examining the way money flows through this public bank. And law enforcement testified in the Senate hearings last year, uh, like the Secret Service and FinCEN, that law enforcement has the tools that they need to perform the forensic accounting on the various behavior in Bitcoin. And the, the Silk Road trial is actually uh, scheduled, I think, for January. So, no, it's not a, a privacy haven. How about the next question? Yes. First of all, thank you for sharing all of your insights. It's certainly an interesting conversation. The question I have, and every entrepreneur in the room has to answer this question, you know, what don't we know? Right? It's the unknown unknowns. Yeah, right? That's, that's where the opportunity is. And yeah, I think a right. lot of people in Bitcoin prefer that they keep that information asymmetry. <laughs> so we don't know what we don't know. And so then the question is, how are you managing that? And we talk about a public bank, you know, the blockchain, the distributed ledger, all that makes great sense as a technology. But when we start to talk about it as a public bank, and then treating it, you know, it's interesting the terminologies of market cap and trending and all of this, I mean, that's, that's equity-based conversation, right? So where do those intersect? What's that convergence look like? And how do we manage what we don't know? I guess I'll take this one. I mentioned earlier that Bitcoin is the first practical implementation of triple-entry bookkeeping. We came up with double-entry bookkeeping 600 years ago. And how that works is you have the debit and the credit from one public key to the other public key in the network. Then you have a confirmation that puts it into a blockchain. This is a fundamental innovation in accounting theory. How that gets applied in the computer science and the information systems and these distributed systems We've never seen anything like this before. I mean, we are truly in uncharted territory with this Bitcoin technology. It's a huge, huge technological innovation. Mark Andreessen, he says that there's the personal computer, the internet, and there's Bitcoin in terms of the scale of the technological innovations in our lifetime. You know, we've just never seen anything like this before. It's, it's kind of an undefined quantity, but we see a lot of potential uses for it. And then the potential uses that it will unlock that we don't even have any concept of yet will be tremendous, in my opinion. Like 20 years ago, nobody would have thought that we would have an Uber today. You know, but that's how that technology has been applied. I think it's going to be very similar with Bitcoin. One more question. We've got about a minute left. Okay, hopefully simple and quick. Um, when Bitcoin started, I understand the hardware and the software. 
were pretty much open source. You can run the Bitcoin software on anything. Particularly over the last year, I read that the software, the hardware has become more specialized, more concentrated in data centers around the world like Scandinavia. So whilst the owners of the hardware, the leases of this hardware are decentralized, the actual hardware itself has become more closed. The panel see that as a threat to the openness of Bitcoin, and how do you see that result? So the question is whether the development of ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, which are chips designed specifically to run the algorithm to solve the blocks needed to create a new block in the blockchain, whether that's a threat to Bitcoin. Alan, you're probably the closest to that. Would you like to tackle it? I guess my only answer to that is that still everything in Bitcoin is open source, just because the hardware that's there uh, has been specialized. I don't think that the specialization of the hardware is necessarily the risk. There's still the possibility that anyone can get hardware and run that hardware and participate in the network and no one can stop that person from doing it. And I think that's the real value in Bitcoin is centralization isn't necessarily really, really bad. It's shutting out competition that's really bad. And one of the values of Bitcoin is that there's nothing stopping another company or even a smaller organization from getting hardware and, and contributing to the network. And uh, there's no way for that person to be stifled. Okay, well that wraps up our time. We'd like to thank our panelists. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. Yeah.